Some of you are going to find this a bit incredulous, but here's something that federal, state, and local governments all tell us to do that we should actually listen to. Eat more fruits and vegetables. You've heard about the health benefits of increasing plant-based nutrients into your diet, but how can you easily consume all the fruits and veggies needed? Well, it's easy. By adding Grown American Superfood and Essential Vitamins Plus Immunity into your meals. Grown American Superfood and Essential Vitamins Plus Immunity is a power blend that has 31 fruits and vegetables in every scoop. Organic vegetables, super greens, super fruits, and super sprouts. It is fortified with essential vitamins plus an immunity boost. And right now, you can get a free two-week supply of Grown American Superfood and Essential Vitamins Plus Immunity by just paying $8.95 for the shipping and handling. And not only that, you'll also get a free frother to quickly whip up your healthy and nutritious grown American drink. Go to grownamericansuperfood.com forward slash John and order today. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. I'm John Fugelsang. This is SiriusXM Progress. I'm so excited to welcome Dr. Tracy Pearson back to the show. She's a legal analyst and a consultant you've seen on TV and radio and podcasts and Forbes and the New York Post and Cheddar News and News Nation. Dr. Tracy, thank you so much for making sense of all this Michigas. Missed you the last couple of weeks. Thank you for joining our, our guest host. Welcome back. Well, thank you, John. It's wonderful to be here with you. I have a new favorite day of the week, which is Wednesday. And the fact that you're back on air, all is right in the world again. Thank you. In spite of popular demand, I am back on the air. <laughs> um, and boy, they tried to stop. I mean, Bono and uh, wrote a letter. Jimmy Carter uh, wrote a letter. I didn't even think he could do that. Like They really tried to stop it. But here I am. Um, you know, I'm glad you're here because finally the government is starting to do something. For working people. Uh, and finally, I feel like we've reached a point where um, the Republican Party is focusing on the needs of real Americans. And I say that because the special counsel is going to indict Hunter Biden. So this is going to fix everything in our culture. Um, Tracy, you know, my, my thoughts on this is uh, fantastic. If he broke any laws, please string him up. I don't care. It's the president's son. It's really nice not being in a cult. In fact, I think I've said to you, we should investigate the business dealings and personal malfeasance of all presidential kids. Let me hear you, MAGA. Are we in for that? No, no one. Where are you going? Um, <laughs> this is a good thing, right? I know it's political. And I know this poor man is being persecuted for crimes he would never go to jail for if he was just Joe Schmo. This is all to satisfy Republican bloodlust. But... I don't care. Go ahead. Investigate. Yeah, my position on that is 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 very similar, which is, oh, you're doing that. OK, um, the process that we have that is provided under our laws and our Constitution it applies to all. And so if it applies to Trump, then it applies to Hunter Biden. It applies to Joe Biden. If Joe Biden did something, if yes. it applies to everyone, you and me. So I think that it's unfortunate that 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 this is happening, but it's also happening because the the, the DOJ, what they were 
I think attempting to do um, when when that ne- deal was negotiated was to try to insulate it from becoming a, a political tool should yeah. Trump get um, uh, yes. reelected. God forbid. It was smart. Um, and and unfortunately, it didn't look like all the other other types of language that you would see in an agreement. And so it, it, there were questions asked. Um, I'm not so sure that I agree with what the judge did because I've seen agreements that that do contain that language. But um, I think that that it broke down. And I do think that there were other charges that may be coming after that. And so yeah, for, Hunter for those, Biden's those, counsel. Right. Yeah, for those who don't remember, yeah. this was, this is July, which is years ago. But, but Hunter <clears throat> right. Biden had a deal. He was going to plead guilty to these two misdemeanor tax charges and this flimsy gun charge. Um, and then the judge didn't like the agreement. So it fell apart like six weeks ago. And they appointed the special counsel who now says that they're going to have an indictment by the end of the month. Uh, but it will be, and they have I to. believe. They have to because the speedy trial law. Right. But it's going to be on the it's going to be on the gun charge. Literally, Republicans, because they made such an outcry that Hunter Biden was going to plead guilty and their little fantasy league was going to go away once the story left the headlines. So they raised holy hell. That's really what happened here. Right. And now their literal holy grail is going to be getting a, a white man on a gun charge. Because he didn't have an adequate he didn't have an adequate background check. Literally, that's what Republicans care about now. Exactly. On a gun charge. And and unfortunately for them, it I think it backfires on them because, first of all, the Supreme Court tossed out the gun law that that um, that applies. So it's it's a gun law that that I think the Supreme Court issued a decision that that called that into question or, or the appellate court issued a decision that called that into question. Um, And so it's probably not applicable to Hunter Biden, but also um, Hunter Biden's asserting that, wait a minute, we had an agreement, buddy. And 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 his counsel is is vociferously arguing that we had an agreement that we relied upon and and we are acting in reliance on that. So we have a contract and rightly so. And I think that that this is going to be um, a scuffle. I am not comfortable enough to predict the outcome on this one. Unlike today's earlier hearing when it when it came to um, Cheese Man and, and the Kraken Woman. Um, we'll but get to that. I, I, yeah, but but this one, I think, is is a well-deserved fight. When you come to is an it, agreement with a prosecutor, it should be enforceable. Right. I, I, I'm, I'm with you on that. I mean, is it OK for me to say both? I don't care what happens to Hunter Biden, but I also hope he sues every one of these people to hell because that's kind of where yeah. I'm landing now. Don't care what happens, yeah. but my God, I hope this guy sues people because if if he's been detoxing and getting clean and having to deal with this and uh, pictures of his junk on a thousand hard drives out there every day. Uh, I mean, this this I, I do feel bad for the guy. And I also feel like we have to hold people accountable for their crimes. It's really simple. Yeah. I don't care about I, I, it's a really weird crossroads. First of all, it was always the case that that kids of, of politicians were untouchable, like kids of the president were untouchable. Right. Um, and what I mean by untouchable was we left them alone and didn't harass them. That doesn't seem to apply to to Hunter no. Biden. George Second, Bush's son, Neil, was ripping people off with the SNL scandals and everyone said, oh, well, too bad. He's president's son. Let him go. Yeah, exactly. And then secondly, I think that absolutely I don't necessarily care what happens to him because he's just a private citizen. He is a private citizen and, and whatever happened to happens to him happens to him. 
um, he is not Joe Biden. But also, um, yes, I, I do think that he has some probably has some claims against some people, but he absolutely has no claims against anybody who is in an official capacity involved with the DOJ or the special counsel. I mean, that's, right. you know, he can pursue enforcing the agreement, but he can't pursue any civil claims against them. I do think also that these idiots over in Congress who keep screwing with him, he might have some difficulties there. But right. can you imagine just how horrible that is that that you have been that, that your life has been invaded in that way that that, you know, your person person personal information and your personal photographs and all of those things get get distributed. Yeah. And it's just so absolutely disgusting. Yeah, um, because, that again, that's not really, like you know, the, the Donald Trump Stormy Daniels case is related to lawbreaking. This other stuff is related to Hunter Biden uh, becoming a addict to parties too hard to cope with his pain and you know um i didn't need to see his dick pic that's that's what yeah I'm exactly but, and nobody and tracy needs are these missed are these misdemeanor charges that the special counsel is going for because it really looks like the department of justice is going to extraordinary lengths to go after someone they normally wouldn't go after just to appease right-wing people angry they're going after the real crimes of you know who Typically, when you're seeking an indictment, you're seeking a felony charge. You're not seeking a okay. misdemeanor charge. Um, the grand jury can push back and say, no, this is a misdemeanor and, and this isn't a, a felony. And um, and so you then what, what gets filed is, a, is an information as opposed to an indictment. But um, when a prosecutor prosecutor can individually bring in information, uh, but it, uh, usually a grand jury uh, means an indictment. So an offense that has a sentence that is a, a year or more. OK, um, I, I do want to talk about the uh, judge in Georgia today because we had our first ever televised bits of a Donald Trump trial. But can we go to the phones for a minute and talk to some riffraff? Absolutely. Go for uh, it. Darren is on the line from California. Darren, thanks for waiting on hold. You're on Sirius XM with Dr. Tracy Pearson. How you doing? Hey, Darren. Hey, guys. Hi. Hey. Hi. I enjoy listening to you on Wednesdays. That's great that you do that. Thank you very much. Oh, I learned great. a lot from that. And, uh, John, I have a birthday a couple of weeks before you. We're basically the same age. And I'm so, so excited to meet you and uh, thank you. talk to you on the phone. And When's your birthday? What day? About three years ago. August oh, 21st. Thank you. Oh, right on. Okay, yeah, another Virgo. Bir- Great. Yeah. So happy birthday. And uh, I just got back from Burning Man. Doesn't really have anything to do with any of the law stuff that Tracy talks about. But No, we, no but we were talking about natural Neil disasters. Cattial, though? <laughs> Did you see Neil Cattial in his little propeller hat? That's all I want to know. <laughs> Say that again. No, Neil Cattial was there with a with his propeller hat, the lawyer who's on MSNBC. Oh, I did not see him. I did, that's funny. Uh, our our friend Natalia yeah, Reagan was okay. there, and I was texting with her as she was trapped out there. Please, uh, Darren, yeah. tell us what your experience was uh, for those of us who, you know, for me, I've never gotten to go to Burning Man, so just being trapped in raw sewage sounds great. But what what was your experience like? <laughs> you can do that on an airplane, John. You can do that, yeah, right here in New York. Uh, it was pretty funny. Uh, it was actually not as bad as the news made it sound. Um, I guess the worst things were that the bathrooms were uh, not able to be serviced because nobody could drive around. I mean, it was like that's what I heard. The mud that's very, very slippery. So basically, you just uh, go in there to sit down and number two only, and use a pee bottle in your tent or whatever. You know, it's not right. wasn't that big a deal. And once they were able to service them, everything was great. And uh, what about the actual weather? Was the actual weather was the actual weather uh, a hellacious event? I know we we haven't learned yet how that one fellow died, but but w- was it just a matter of you were just trapped in your tents and people just chilled out, or was there was there partying and celebrating? Oh no, we celebrated. Uh, we do what's called running of what we call running of the bulls every year, 
And uh, we basically run from what they call center camp up to 6 o'clock promenade to the man. And uh, we have these inflatable 7-foot-long, 7-foot-tall bull costumes. We have about eight of us that run from there to the man and chase people around and stuff. And uh, oh my we couldn't God. do that this year because it was too muddy. And so we uh. walked around our block because we only walk around. And everybody just started cheering and becoming happy. And, you know, we, we nice. persevered and made, made it through and had a great nice. time. So I wanted to say hi to all the burners out there. And um, we did it. And it was hot at the beginning of the week and a little bit dusty. And then it rained. And then the rest of the week it was great and clear and not dusty at all. And we just drove, I That's literally great. just got home about 20, 30 minutes ago. Right on. I'm glad you're okay. I'm glad. I'm glad. That's great. Yeah, Natalia told me kind of the same thing that uh, you know it was it was uncomfortable for some, but people still had a lot of fun. We had a great time. Yeah, we had a we had a lot of fun. All our camps, all our neighbors got together. We helped each other out, cooked for oh, each other, great. that sort of thing, and. It was an awesome time. It was a great time, and that's, that's and like much Grover, what that all about. Grover, Grover Norquist wasn't there to gross everyone out and ruin it, was he? Like he, you were <laughs> you were marked safe from Grover Norquist at Burning Man. I believe so. Yes. <laughs> right on. Well, thank you, yeah, man. I'm glad you're okay. Well, thanks, guys. I'm, Thank yeah. you. Call back any time. It's great to hear from you. And I, d- I just want to say, Tracy, I, I really hope that the folks that were stranded at Burning Mad had something on hand to um, uh, uh, improve their moods. I, I hope they had some mood-altering thing that they could do to make it more bearable. <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking I, about. <laughs> I, I think they Thanks, probably Darren. did. I mean, I, I, you know, I felt bad for the folks, but... But at the same time, you know, like I'm an indoor girl, so I just can't even fathom the idea of going there in the first place. But, you know, hey, I, I, I was absolutely concerned and I didn't know that Natalia was there. I mean, I would have been yeah. even more concerned knowing that. Well, Poor she can girl. handle herself pretty good. So let me play you a little bit of what happened today in the beautiful mm-hmm. state of Georgia, where a Fulton County judge broke a lot of MAGA hearts by denying motions to sever. Uh, Sydney Powell, the Kraken lady, and Kenneth Cheesebro, who's just a Cheesebro, uh, from the larger RICO trial. This made a lot of headlines today, and I want to play this and then talk about why it matters. Here's the judge. So based on what's been presented today, I, I, I'm not finding the severance uh, from Mr. Chesbro or Powell is necessary to achieve a fair determination of the guilt or innocence for either defendant in this case. And so I'll, I'll deny Mr. Chesbro's motions to sever from Ms. Powell. I'll deny in part uh, Ms. Powell's motion to sever from Mr. Chesbro. And the plan will be to enter a scheduling order for Miss um, Powell mirroring that of Mr. Chesbro with the October 23rd date holding. Uh, it sounds like the state is still sticking to the position that all these defendants should remain and they want to address some of these removal issues. Um, I'll... I'll I'm willing to hear that. I, I remain very skeptical, uh, but we can. Um, I'm, I'm willing to hear what you have to say on it. And so, but again, because we're on a limited time frame, I don't think we have the luxury of, of, of waiting. Now, you wouldn't know it, but that was actually very exciting, what he just said. Uh, because, Tracy, it seems like these people were fine conspiring together on one team, but now they really are worried about being in a trial with Trump, and they're really worried about being on trial with each other. Um, Why did they want to sever their case from each other, besides the fact that they both know the other one's guilty? Absolutely. I got my start in TV doing uh, live trial commentary. So to me, it was a lot of a lot of fun to watch this today and to live tweet it. Um, But uh, the importance of, of severance for them 
I have some theories on this, which is that, well, first of all, they wanted to sever from each other and, and because Powell sought her speedy trial rights, she fought to to assert those um, and meaning that she wanted her trial sooner. Um, Cheeseboro wants to separate from Powell because they're basically they're they're all sort of claiming that um, they were only if they were responsible, they were only responsible for their part and therefore right. Um, they shouldn't be included with everyone else because of the taint of all of this would have on them. But yes. the, that's the beauty of Rico. Rico says you were part of a conspiracy and you're as guilty if, if you committed that conspiracy as if you were part of every single what's called a predicate act, which is the the unlawful act. Um and so they wanted to separate for those reasons. And they 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 also sort of suggested they wanted to separate from Trump when when one of the lawyers, I believe it was the lawyer um, for Cheeseboro or Chessboro, however that's pronounced, um, who, who stood up first. He tried to make an, an argument, um, and I think he was just sort of flying by the seat of his pants at this point. Uh, towards the end of the argument saying that that basically they they were just trying to prosecute Donald Trump and it, they didn't want to be associated with Donald Trump because th- that would be bad for their case essentially right. um right. and and so you know it was the thing the quiet thing that is said out loud um and i think that uh it is going to backfire on them the judge was very astute and i thought he was really thoughtful at the end when he sort of brought up a number of issues that were concerning to him. Um, I am less concerned about fitting 19 people in a courtroom. He was a little bit more concerned about that. Um, but he was concerned about the fact that there are other people who are trying to be have their case removed to federal court. The mm-hmm. question is, is, does one case that gets removed now extract all the other cases? And what happens when if that d- is denied? That that removal is denied and they try to take it up on appeal. Is he going to be barred from moving forward with the other cases? Um, Ah. The issue. Yeah. Um, And but if that's denied, does does um, and, and, you know, let's assume the appeals denied as well. If that's denied, does that also mean all the other defendants who have brought those federal cases will will also be denied? I do think the severance argument uh, that they tried to bring was stupid. I think that I, there were a couple times I, I tweeted about how um, that the defense absolutely screwed up. At one point, that one of the defense lawyers was asked, uh, "Is are you just talking about redacting the indictment? Are you talking about that there's a problem with the admissibility of certain evidence against one client over the over the other defendant?" And uh, the guy said. Well, it's it, I think we're talking about redaction of the indictment. And I said, oh, you lost. You absolutely freaking lost there, because the issue here is does certain evidence that said is that prejudicial or you know presented? Is that prejudicial against your client when it shouldn't be? And right. so he gave the wrong freaking answer. And the other guy got up and he tried to clean it up. But it was too late at that point. And the fact is, is that on the law on this case is really straightforward. What really bothered me today was hearing all of the legal analysts that that were on TV talking about how um, uh, Fannie Willis's strategy to bring 150 plus witnesses over a four month period, how, how that was ridiculous and over litigating the case. And I thought, well, how dare you? First of all, how dare yeah. you 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 question uh, uh, you know a black woman who's who's incredibly effective at her job? She got a conviction against multiple teachers, like eleven teachers or twelve teachers in a RICO case who can That's right. uh, had conspired 
um, to commit, you know, a, a cheating scandal. But but how dare you? Because these folks are federal prosecutors. They don't work in Georgia. They aren't Georgia state prosecutors. They don't know this sandbox. And it's just blatantly microaggressions, in so my let opinion. Me, let me ask you, though, why... This is very bad news. The main thing is what we saw today was very bad news and a very dangerous precedent for all the co-defendants in this case. Um, Fonnie Willis wants to have all 19 of them there sitting alongside Donald Trump. She doesn't want to have 19 trials. She wants one trial with all of them in the room at the same time. And obviously, you can see why a lot of them, led by Meadows, are trying to sever themselves from the rest of the pack, because you have a substantially greater chance of being found guilty if you're sitting there next to Trump and Rudy and Sidney and Jenna and all these grifters. That's a possibility. That's a possibility, but I think it's driven by something else. And it's something that um, the prosecutor talked about with Judge Justice Scalia, late Justice Scalia, which is that when when you sever cases, there's there's sort of a a preference to not do that, because as you proceed through these trials, the person who is is trying their case last or later gets the benefit of seeing that case go forward. Mm -hmm. multiple times so that they can strategize on how they're going to deal with it so they get sort of get a preview and they and you're going to get what how many people 17 previews or 18 previews you you don't want that to happen so i think it's it's it is less though not completely not it's less likely that it's about trump being at the table and it's more likely about trump wanting to be last because that's why he's saying that he wants he doesn't have enough time and wanting to be last so they'll get you know, all of these, I don't want to call them bites at the apple, but what they are is opportunities to watch the play so they can learn the lines. And this is going to be televised. I mean, Fonnie Willis is going to lay out how the conspiracy worked with most of these people in the courtroom on camera. Yes, that's that. That is my understanding is it's going to be televised and having done a lot of these these trials and, and, and having done commentary on them. Um, it is a fascinating process to watch at, simultaneously. It can be mind numbing for people because course, to I'm me, sure. it's fascinating given the way it works. But to the average me, person, it is not law and order. Well, let me ask you a, a somewhat related question. We talked a couple of weeks ago when I was in the Hollywood studios and you joined us about this 14th Amendment business uh, that Donald Trump um, is already prohibited from running for office because it, the 14th Amendment keeps anyone who's previously taken an oath to uphold the Constitution from ever holding office if they've engaged in insurrection or rebellion. Now, this week, a group of Colorado voters have gotten tired of the debate of how would this work, and they actually sued today to keep Donald Trump off the 2024 ballot in the state of Colorado. To me, this is uh, uh, fascinating. I I can't even imagine it. And the blowback from MAGA, who would think this is the deep state trying to deny democracy, to be honest, kind of scares me. Where do you come down on trying to get Trump off the ballot? Uh, Personally, I think it'd be much safer if we just let him run and lose again. But what do you think? Again, I think that this is I've talked about this with you. I talked about with Max, too. I I think that it's the thing that makes us feel good. It makes us feel good. But is it practical? No, it isn't. Because, first of all, there there'll be these wacky appeals that will give him an opportunity for for, to be, you know, have people be a mouthpiece for him. I think that it is uh, there's a question about standing. There's a question about the constitutionality of it. I think that because there's no process prescribed. But importantly, I think that 
there's a question legally about what does it mean to have have committed an insurrection? Does it require a conviction? And I know that there's one case that's that was sort of decided a long time ago, but it it really brings forward an issue of what does that language truly mean? And and in the context of the entire document, and are you innocent until proven guilty? And if he hasn't been charged with an insurrection, or committing an insurrection, and we've seen people who have, then is it is it going to work? Or is this just a lot of fluff? And and I think that ultimately he is going to see accountability. And and I just I, I'm having a hard time believing that this is an effective use of resources. And I know people aren't going to like that. That's OK. I, 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 I you know, I kind of feel the same way. I, I kind of feel like if we're sitting here saying we have to protect democracy, we can't let ourselves be put in the position of trying to deny it to someone, even if it's constitutional. I just worry a lot about how this would the worst thing we can do is give MAGA fuel. The worst thing we can do is give them something to point at. And to me, this is like Anthony Weiner on a pogo stick you know, <laughs> saying, well, we will take you. We will take you off the ballot. Trump is something that would be used against the Democratic Party. Yeah, I just don't think it's 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 not a good use of resources. I understand people want accountability and I understand that. And, and this comes from Donald Trump's own presidency, that people have been conditioned to wanting things immediately and thinking that this is Burger King and they can have it their way to a drive-thru. <laughs> that's how the world works. We got to hit a break. We'll be right back with your calls. This is Progress. Don't go away. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Hey everybody, it's Michael Steele, host of the Michael Steele Podcast. Each week, I discuss key political and cultural issues joined by America's leading activists, experts, and academics for conversations that transcend political boundaries. And that's the point. I want you to join me as we work through real solutions, have honest conversations, just keeping it real, and having a little fun on the side. So listen to the Michael Steele Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Spreaker, or wherever you get your podcasts on. Because you know I love it when you do. This is SiriusXM. I'm John Fugelsang. This is Tell Me Everything, bringing good trouble to the right-wing bubble. 
John Nichols is with us. John's the national affairs correspondent for The Nation. He's a contributing writer for the excellent magazine, The Progressive, and In These Times. And he is the associate editor of Madison, Wisconsin's Capital Times. John's written a lot of great books, including his most recent Coronavirus Criminals and Pandemic Profiteers. We're always thrilled to get one of the smartest and most compassionate men with guts in the game. Mr. Nichols, welcome back. Well, what an honor to be with you, and welcome back to New York. I got to tell you, sir, I, I, I got lulled into a false sense of security by your state when we saw an incredible number of young people show up to vote for Judge Protosewitz in a Supreme Court election in Wisconsin. I thought, wow, look at this democracy in, in action. These guys repealed Roe v. Wade and young people are turning up in off off year elections to vote for state Supreme Court. Wow, things are going to be great in Wisconsin. And it turns out our anti-democratic Republican friends in your beautiful state have been uh, kind of anti-democratic, haven't they? They sure have. I mean, it, you'll recall the film Groundhog's Day. Indeed. Um, that's sort of Wisconsin's political experience. We keep, you know, waking up every morning and, and it's it's kind of the same thing. And And this is a pattern in the Wisconsin Republican Party. And that is that when they lose, they don't accept defeat. Um, and in fact, it's not in the noble way. It's more in the, the scheming, awful way. Uh, well, as you point out, in uh, April, Janet Protosiewicz, who's a, a well-regarded longtime prosecutor and, and judge, got elected to the state Supreme Court. That tipped the balance of the state Supreme Court to a 4-3 liberal majority for the first time in decades. What that meant was you had a court that could revisit um, decisions on women's rights, labor rights, and democracy, and and frankly, decide them correctly, because they had the right-wing judicial activists who had controlled the court had made an extension of the Republican legislature. So everything was looking good, um, except um, we've got a lousy state constitution. Yeah. Um, it's a written, it's a good constitution generally, but it's got a section in it that allows for the impeachment of Supreme Court justices. Now that's that's going to happen, right? And that I'm sure, not, of course, and, and well, it, and well, it should if they've done something corrupt. But but it's got no reason for which to impeach him. You can impeach him like I didn't like the the I didn't like the cut of that guy's jib. I didn't like the look of their shoes. Um, you can impeach for any reason. <laughs> that's problem number one. Number two is once you've impeached, not convicted, but once you've impeached, that judge can no longer rule on any cases. Uh-huh. And so what the Republicans were looking at is a situation where this Supreme Court would very quickly, it was presumed very quickly, deal with the issue of gerrymandered legislative districts and create fair maps. Yeah. You create fair maps in Wisconsin, the Republicans lose the legislature. So um, they decided to, in a uh, act of self-preservation, uh, start talking about impeaching Janet Protosiewicz before she has heard a single case um, literally within the first two months of her tenure. Um, and their reason for impeaching her is simply because she had said that the maps that she might rule on were rigged, which is a universally accepted reality. Yes. She didn't say anything that, that isn't said by everybody else. And also, intriguingly enough, last thing I'll tell you on this, um, the Republicans raised complaints about some of her statements during the campaign. It takes a long time for the State Judicial Commission to review such complaints to see if there's any problems. It happens ironically that in the same week the Republicans ramped up their discussion about impeaching her, the Judicial Commission came down with a unanimous decision that she had done nothing wrong. Exactly. So she's literally the only judge 
who's fully certified as having done nothing wrong. And they're talking about impeaching him. It just seems like these Republicans have eyes too big for their stomach. They're so voracious to override the will of voters that they're going to try to allege that she violated their judicial code of ethics because she made a comment during the campaign about a map being rigged. Meanwhile, John Clarence Thomas could eat a baby on TV and we couldn't do anything about it. He could eat a baby with a knife and fork and we just have to sit there and watch. Well, I wouldn't really want to watch that. Um, Nor would I, actually. Good point. (laughs) In fairness. Um, But, yeah, I mean, look, we've got a problem with the courts in general. There's there's no doubt of that, that um, the right wing figured out decades ago that the, the kind of pivot point on American politics is to get control of the courts. It's the one place where generally... Um, there wasn't a lot of attention paid, right? So you pay attention to Supreme Court nominations, maybe even to the occasional election. But in some sort of structural sense, the reality was that we thought that the places where real contest took place was for president and for Congress, for the state legislature, for governor. And yes. so court races became a place where the right put a lot of resources, put a lot of energy. And then, of course, in nomination fights at the federal level as well. End result is that we now have a judiciary that's made up of a lot of folks who are really bad players. I mean, you know, this is, it's not just Clarence Thomas. There's a lot of them. And we had it in spades in Wisconsin, right? We had, you know, an immense level of uh, problems with our state Supreme Court. It became so egregious that um, eventually the people kind of woke up to it. And so we've had a pattern of elections going back now to 2018, where when people are given a choice to elect a liberal justice, Right. You know, a real progressive. Um, They've done so by overwhelming margins. And so we've elected three new progressive justices in the last five years. Like, you know, you have an election, you elect a progressive. It's been going like that and not by small margins. These are landslide victories. There was a fourth justice already on. So now the support the court has a liberal majority totally elected with strong support from the people. There's no question these are the justices that they want. And elected in campaigns where, frankly, these candidates were clear about where they stand on the issues. They literally said, you know, um, I'm not going to tell you how I'm going to decide cases, but I will tell you my values. And so there's no there's absolutely no space in which the Republicans can make a case that Janet Protosiewicz, as an example, shouldn't be on this court or that this court shouldn't be a liberal court. People have clearly decided that it should be. The, The thing is, though, they're willing to take the hit because they know that a court that will actually decide cases based on the rule of law, based on, you know, a practical interpretation of where things should stand, um, will be a disaster for them because they have survived politically because of a court that was corrupted. The the court that was, of course, before, which had a conservative majority. So so how much did the repeal of Roe v. Wade shake up business as usual for Wisconsin? Well, it's, it's shaking things up everywhere. I mean, Wisconsin's just one of the many, many places. But Wisconsin's a unique player in this regards because it's got one of the oldest of the, uh, you know, kind of, uh, I don't know what the proper word is, vampire laws, you know, the, the living dead zombie laws. Um, Wisconsin had a ban on abortion from 1849. So that's before, you know, before the Civil yeah. War, before, you know, women had the right to vote. Uh, before anyone alive was around, they they banned abortion in 1849. And then if you look at the law from 1849, it isn't even really a clear abortion ban. It's 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 talking about something else altogether. And so 
it's it's problematic in all sorts of ways. This is clearly something that needs to be visited by the court, right? And so when people went to the polls in April of this year, the first election in Wisconsin after the Dobbs decision that threw out Roe v. Wade, they were absolutely clear on what they were voting on. Question was, do you want a Supreme Court that can, you know, look at this 1849 law and decide whether it should stay on the books or whether it's it's problematic and ought to be tossed, or do you want a Supreme Court that's going to keep it, right? And they chose to elect, you know, the the, the final justice, the tipping justice, um, people who have said, look, we want to revisit this law. We want to look at it and ask why it's on the books and and look at it with a real question about whether it's legitimate. And um, the vote was overwhelming. And it was, I'll tell you, here's the interesting thing. In Wisconsin, Supreme Court le- elections have been pretty intense for a while. They, they These battles are not new. Um, right. But what we saw in April of this year was a massive turnout from young people. I mean, they literally had lines going oh, yeah. out the door, campuses yep. around the state. Yep. And I think, honestly, John, this is one of the things that the Republicans are terrified by. Because um, I think they're terrified that... Uh, there really has been a shift that we now have a mobilized voting block that in this very close battleground state of Wisconsin tips the balance toward the Democrats. And so if we then get fair maps, right, where we have honest elections for the legislature, they're done politically. I mean, they're really doomed. And so that's why you see this desperation move to try and impeach a justice, which will then force her not to be able to rule on cases, which then destabilizes the Supreme Court. It'd be a 3-3 split. And so you actually have something kind of amazing in American history where you've got one branch of government literally moving to shut down another branch of government that would have held it to account. Of course. And I have to ask you how this factors in on a national level, because next year will be our first presidential election since the repeal of Roe v. Wade. My, John, uh, corporate media and our friends at CNN are spending a lot of time trying to convince us that Donald Trump is more popular than Joe Biden. Uh, It seems like this is some horse race nonsense early on in the game. I don't really trust polls the year before. And when you poll people, I want to believe it comes more down to the issues and ideology than which old man makes me feel more energized. But what do you make of this relentless barrage of doom polls the liberal media has been feeding us? Oh, you know, look, first thing I'll tell you is I cover politics for a living. So I actually and I, and I have a relatively good memory. Um, and so I remember the polls that showed Barack Obama losing in the summer of 2011. You're right. That Obama couldn't get reelected and he was is really problematic. And Mitt Romney, everybody loved Mitt Romney and other Republicans could could beat Obama. And, as, and those polls were there. Um, well, what happened? Barack Obama swept to reelection and, and you know, actually it was a, it was a pretty big win for him. Not yeah. as big as in 2008, but solid enough. And and so first off, you know, when you look at polls at this point, you should be very careful about it. But then here's another thing about Joe Biden. And this is something that, you know, I think Democrats don't like to talk about it. It makes them uncomfortable. But the fact is, Joe Biden was hired as a manager, not as an inspirational leader. Correct. Right. Yeah. He was hired to to clean something up. Yep. And it was a mess. And he was a he was a longtime guy who'd been around for a while. He knows how things work, et cetera. So he's hired to be a manager. Now, everybody wants their president to be beloved, right? That's just the reality, you know? And and so I think a lot of Democrats want to tell themselves, oh, you know, these polls are so crazy. <laughs> the polls aren't that crazy. What they show is that, you know, roughly equal levels of people like Trump and Biden, right? 
And then there's about eight to 10% of people that, that, you know, don't, that, that say they don't have an opinion. Yeah. Well, they actually have an opinion. They would probably prefer someone other than Biden as president, but mm-hmm. they really don't want Trump as president. And yes. so when they're forced to choose, right, when you get to that point, you actually are looking at, the, at you know, 10 million, 12, 14 million people or more um, who are going to come into that that voting circumstance. And they haven't weighed in in the polls, but the, the evidence is, and, and there's pretty strong evidence that there are a lot of them, major, overwhelming majority of them, will vote for Biden. And right. so Biden's got this sort of residue of people who don't love the guy and are never going to love the guy. I'm sorry, if you work at Walmart, you don't love the manager. But, yeah. you know, but it's the person who that you got there making sure the store opens at 8 a.m. or whatever. <laughs> and, um, and I'm not comparing Joe Biden to a Walmart manager. I know. Um, you know, <laughs> but you understand what I'm saying. I do. I do. Yeah, it's it's going to be remarkable seeing how it all shakes out. And I keep thinking all the time of Joe Biden's constant admonition. Don't compare me to the almighty. Compare me to the alternative. Uh, right. If it comes down to a race between these two old white men again, uh, I think it's going to come down to ideology. I really do. Yeah. I think it's going to come down to good. what, you know, the positions on the issues and Roe v. Wade is going to drive a, a lot more turnout. I, I do have to ask you about some other uh, friends of ours in the South. Um, I spent a lot of time at Graceland when I was younger. I For VH1, they would always send me down there for Elvis Week every year. I met all the Jordanaires and his bandmates, and I, I even met people Didn't who claimed to be... I met several people who claimed to be illegitimate children of Elvis. Really? But, uh, yeah. Oh, yes. A guy named Kenny Presley, who looks like an illegitimate child of Martin Sheen, was there. And the Graceland folks never denied that he might have been. But, you know, you, don't, you like to think. Yeah. You want to believe. You want to believe. Good, good, However, good on Kenny. Um, Let's talk about the great state of Mississippi, which gave us Elvis out of Tupelo, because right now it turns out Elvis has a distant cousin who is 46 and a longtime public servant who you claim has a <laughs> decent shot at maybe being elected governor. We're, we're, we're talking about the Mississippi in America, right, John? The one, the one, we are. the, the Confederate, not, that, that one, there's not, okay. Yeah, not the other Mississippi. Um, no, uh, we are talking about the state of Mississippi, which you are correct, um, has uh, often disappointed us politically. Um, but uh, this the state that that really kind of held out longest and hardest for segregation and uh, and then saw all the Democrats who had been segregationists and really bad players suddenly realize they were Republicans. And um, and they now have had, you know, Republicans in pretty much a dominant position for quite a while. And and on the surface, you would think that Mississippi uh, is, you know, kind of a lost cause, right? That that yeah. it's going to be a state that's that's going to elect Republicans no matter what. The the problem with that calculus is that it doesn't look at the demographics of Mississippi. The fact is, Mississippi has the largest black population of any state in the country. Uh, right. Roughly thirty eight percent of their population is black. That's way more than than other states. Um, it also has a history of uh, black women, especially uh, turning out. You know, really good numbers in elections. Indeed. Indeed. Um, in fact, sometimes disproportionately high. Um, when you add on to that, that uh, you also have, you know, a, a, a decent number of liberal whites uh, and a growing Hispanic population in some parts of the state and others. The demographics of Mississippi are not quite so, you know, guaranteed politically as you might expect. The yes. problem that they've had down there has been that uh, Democrats have had trouble sort of organizing the kind of multiracial coalitions they'd need. 
You know, yes. you need a dynamic figure to go out and actually do the work. It's hard. And Brandon Presley, Elvis's second cousin, you say distant, you know, but I'm telling you, my family is second cousin, especially if he's a rock star. That's, that's actually, close. you're right. That's true. I, I, I've had second cousins in my family who've married second cousins. So it's not that far. Well, I'm not, right. I don't want to go that direction. But well, what I do want to, but I do want to tell you, but is, I'm related to it. <laughs> but Brandon Presley is, um, he's quite a remarkable guy. He is, he's not Elvis um, and he wouldn't, wouldn't claim to be, but he is somebody who uh, is a great public speaker, tells a good story, has a sense of humor um, and is actually kind of fun to listen to. Right. You know, he draws a crowd and it's and he's a and he's also a fighter. He's he's very effective um, on the stump. Interesting guy, because he comes from a tiny little town in North Mississippi. He got elected mayor of that town at, I think, 23. Um, Mm -hmm. And it was really kind of beaten downtown that it had some hard, hard knocks along the way. He got elected mayor, uh, not because his name was Presley, but because he was really of the place. He grew up, you know, very working class, even poor. He says that when he was a kid. They had holes in their floor and they could see the dirt underneath the house. And that's something that in the in some parts of the South that actually that resonates. You could tell, you know, yeah. that story. Yeah. And um, and he's gone out and spent a better part of a year. Oh, by the way, he is a state uh, public service commissioner. He's been elected you know, to right. office three times and, and winning in the most conservative part of the state as a populist Democrat, the guy who takes on corporations. And um, but he spent the better part of a year going to. Um, every county in the state and especially going to counties in the in the black regions of the state. And and he's very frank. You know, he'll he'll get up in places where no politician of either party's come for a long time or very few. And uh, there's one event, I, I think it was up in uh, it was northwest Mississippi. Um, and he was in a church and one got up and said, you know, why should we vote for you? You know, I mean, we we haven't been treated very well along the way here. There's an all black audience. And as a white guy, he says, well, look, you know, I can't change the fact that I'm white, but I can tell you that I grew up in a in a town that was multiracial town um, with some really tough breaks along the way. Um, I have, I think, proven myself as a public service commissioner, getting elected three times as a Democrat, not abandoning the Democrats, you know, sticking with it. Um, and then he started going into the issues and he does that. You know, he's just good at making the connection with people because he's frank. He doesn't play games. Um, and he did a fascinating thing. It will give you one other example. The Please. big fight in Mississippi. There's a lot of fights in Mississippi, but one of the big ones is over expansion of Medicaid. Right. And Mississippi is one of those states that hasn't expanded. It's a state yeah. with incredibly high level of uninsured people or underinsured people. Rural hospitals closing all over the place. Oh, yes. So Tate, Tate Reeves, the governor of the state, did his state of the state. And you know, Reeves has said, oh, expanding Medicaid is a horrible idea. It's going to do all kinds of harm and blah, blah, blah. And Brandon Presley did the response to that from a hospital that's threatened with closing in a predominantly black county. And, you know, just saying, you know, this is this is a real moral issue. You know, it's a question whether people are going to have health care and whether yeah. their hospitals are going to close and things like that. And. The evidence is that he's begun to resonate. Uh, there's polls that have showed him within a couple points. Um, inside politics, which is one of the one group that does measures of races and rates them, uh, just this week moved the race up from you know looking solidly Republican to one where you know it's it's not you know an even race, but they're saying it's leaning rather than all the way there. So you're seeing that pattern of stuff. I see it in politics where somebody who's running a very uphill race 
is starting to move enough ground um, that possibility exists. And then this becomes a great question. Um, will Democrats uh, at the national level recognize that, that they got the chance to possibly win a governorship in a very unexpected place? It's and, amazing uh, the way you phrase around. it now. The way you fra- I mean, you point out in the piece that Politico says that in Mississippi, the Democratic Party is basically black and the Republican Party is basically white. But if this guy, Presley, can get the 38 percent of the state's African-American population and then get some white people over. And it mm-hmm. seems like the many scandals of Governor Tate Reeves yes. and the quite overt racism of Governor Tate Reeves. Let's not mm-hmm. forget that I don't know why it's not a national scandal that they've taken law enforcement away from the town of Jackson. But it does seem like Tate Reeves might be the right guy to let a Democrat. You know, I mean, Doug Jones got to be a senator in Alabama because he ran against that's, a pedophile. Well, that's and, and Tate Reeves is, you know, I mean, uh, a different kind of crook, but um, yes. or alleged to be. Um, but, you know, Mississippi's got they, they got a, a heck of a scandal down there. Their state welfare department um, somehow, according to an auditor, mishandled ninety four million dollars. Right now, a welfare department, so social services department in a state like Mississippi, that money, you know, ought to be going to poor and working class people, a lot of whom would be black folks. And right. poor white folks out in rural Mississippi. Instead, somehow they figured out a way to move $94 million. These are Republicans who are in charge of a lot of stuff here. Move $94 million over to people like Brett Favre, the former Green Bay Packers quarterback. Of course. Um, of course. Yeah. And Governor Reeves's, I think it, and I hope I, you know, I don't want to get anything wrong. I want to be fair to these people, but I believe it was Governor Reeves's uh, personal uh, trainer uh, ended up with a whole bunch of money. <laughs> and so a, a lot of. A lot of wealthy or pretty prosperous um, folks in Mississippi seem to somehow be getting the welfare money. And um, and somehow it, it, Brandon Presley has been talking about that in ways that the two seem to does seem to resonate because it's not a hard scandal to figure out. You know, when the rich guys are getting the welfare money, that doesn't sound right. Uh, well, I mean, we've only got like a minute or two left, but I, I do want to ask you briefly to tell us about Alabama, because I really would not have thought that Alabama would be ground zero for every kind of civil rights struggle. But it seems like the Supreme Court has found their threshold of racism that they'll put their foot down about. They have tried to legislate their uh, black population out of representation, and they finally have hit a brick wall. They have hit a brick wall with the U.S. Supreme Court, the very conservative U.S. Supreme Court. And this is a big deal. Look, um, uh, if Joe Biden gets reelected next year and we've suggested in our earlier conversation, that there's a pretty good chance that that happens. Right. It's only going to matter, really, if Joe Biden gets elected with a Democratic Congress. Right. That means holding on to the Senate, which isn't easy, but it also means flipping the House. So the question is, where do you flip the House? Um, there's there's quite a few seats that Democrats can pick up, but it. If when I do the math, I come down to maybe it could be a very close split, maybe just one or two seats. Um, they now have a ruling in Alabama by the of federal courts and then up to the U.S. Supreme Court backing it up that Alabama has to draw a second black district or at least a second district of black yes. voters would be given fair representation. If that happens, um, there is a really good chance, not a guarantee that Alabama will and in fact they're, they're being forced to do this they don't want to they actually tried to avoid doing it but if they, mm-hmm. it happens you do get the second black district there's a very good chance that alabama elects a second democrat to congress amazing if the split on the house is as close as i think it is it might well be that the state of alabama gives democrats control of the house 
John Nichols covers all this in a piece for the nation called The Road to a Democratic Congress Could Run Through Alabama. Mr. Nichols, what's the best way for our listeners to follow you and your work? Well, you've been doing a very good job of guiding people there. It's uh, www.thenation.com, which is uh, where I tend to write things every day. And in fact, tomorrow I have a big story coming up on the, all the Wisconsin fight that we've been talking about tonight. Oh, brilliant. So, try to keep wait. on top of it. Come back and see yeah. us again soon, John. It's really a blessing to have you. Thank you, and have a great evening. We'll be right back with your calls and some final thoughts in a moment on progress. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome back. So to an outsider... Our next guest, the great Patty Lynn, seemed to have the dream TV writing career. She began as an assistant on Late Night with Letterman, then moved on to Hollywood and worked on Freaks and Geeks before anyone knew how special that show was. That led to three of the most popular shows of the 21st century, Friends, Desperate Housewives, and Breaking Bad. And along the way, Ms. Lynn faced head-on the challenges and the injustices and the cruelties and the fevered egos of the television industry, while usually being the only woman and or the only non-white person in the writer's rooms. Her 10-year odyssey with being a creative artist for a dysfunctional industry has now been written up in her wonderful, hilarious, heartbreaking, brilliant memoir, End Credits, How I Broke Up with Hollywood. It is a deeply personal saga. She offers up a rare, up-close and candid look at the business that lures so many smart, creative people to Hollywood and then tries to crush them. It is a great book about writing, both the art and the business. You will learn a ton. What a great pleasure to welcome Patty Lynn to SiriusXM. Thank you, John. Oh, my God, that intro. I feel like I should just go away now like that. <laughs> that intro was amazing. <laughs> I Honestly, I, I this book, there's so many times I can't tell you. I'm on the plane reading your book, and there's so many times that it was like, Oh, that happened to me. Oh, that happened to me. Yeah. The, the emotional mm-hmm. highs and lows. I think, you know, we're selling this book as, as obviously a book about the industry and a, and a funny book. But wow, there's a lot of self-help and healing in this book as well. I, I have to begin, though, mm-hmm. by, by asking you, um, what was it that made you first want to be a writer? When did you know that television was the place for your talents? Well, I fell in love with television before I even wanted to be a writer. You know, like I I grew up uh, in the Midwest. I was the daughter of Taiwanese immigrants and my parents both worked full time. So my brother and I just watched TV all day long. (laughs) We were latchkey kids that just sat in front of the TV. And I just uh, 
I, that's what I was steeped in. Like that, the whole pop culture thing was just my whole world. And, um, and then when I was in third grade, my school uh, launched a creative writing program and we would just write stories for an hour every day. And that's where I really fell in love with writing. And that was just a lifelong passion after that. But I didn't, you know, growing up where I did and with the family that I grew up in, I had no idea that normal people actually could work in show business. It just wasn't <laughs> yeah. any anywhere in my, you know, it just wasn't part of my world. So that was a big leap, you know, to go from that to actually, you know, going to the Letterman show and saying, you know, I want to intern here. Um, that was that was uh, a that was a big, big leap for 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 me and for my family. <laughs> It seems like your internship, I, I I did six internships when I was at NYU film and TV school, so I, I get it. it. But what I read in your book, it seems like the Letterman internship was sort of designed to test you as a trial by fire to see how badly you wanted to even be in this industry. It wasn't really, it wasn't that bad, really. I mean, uh, we we did but our share get, you, of grunt did, work. Right. We, you know, we, we, you were going around getting coffee for people and, you know, uh, it, it, sometimes even sneakers for, for David Letterman because <laughs> yeah. he was really into jogging. <laughs> but, you know, to be honest, that was I expected that. Right. It was an unpaid internship. I was a college kid. I didn't have any experience. So I I was perfectly happy to go get Dave's running shoes. But, you know, the cool thing was that I was also working in the research department and I got to contribute things to the actual show. You know, I would look up the the guests that were coming on and uh, find out just like dig through all the materials about them and then come up with questions for Dave to ask them in the in the interviews. And sometimes my questions would actually get on the show. And that was it was extremely exciting um, to be an 18 year old, you know, like actually having a hand in the making of the show. And after four years there, you made the choice to to go out to L.A. from from a lot of the bios. People would think that Freaks and Geeks was your first TV writing gig. Um, I was really amused to find out your first I think your first professional writing gig was Martial Law with Sammo Hung. Right. And, and yep. Yeah. Did you ever see it? <laughs> I, I, I tried to. I, I, I tried watching a few times <laughs> and. You know, I appreciated that they were trying to do a martial arts comedy hybrid so soon after Rush Hour. Right. But um, yeah. it, it seems like that was your first experience of, well, of, of how it can be a lot of bait and switch for artists coming into TV. Well, it's I think it was a very um, common thing to have your first job be something that just was not what you were intending to do. Right. You know, you, you, it's very hard to get a foot in the door. It's very hard to get your first break as a writer. So you say yes to whatever it is that they're offering you. When I came to LA and I started pounding the pavement, what I wanted to do was write for one hour dramas, like 30 something, you know, I wanted to write relationship shows. And so um, I had no intention of writing a cop show uh, or an action show or a show about martial arts. I really had no it wasn't a great fit for me, but uh, but it was what was offered. And so so, yeah, I did it. But it was um, a very strange mix of elements. And I don't think anybody really got what that show was supposed to be. 
And I and, and it's amazing to me that it's amazing to me that pe- that people still watch it. Like it's I mean, maybe not here in the States, but I, I do think that it still plays somewhere in the world because occasionally like I'll get a residual check for, you know, 10 cents. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, I, I I think people just dig martial arts, you know. Yeah, or or Arsenio Hall. Who knows? Um, but 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 yeah. after that, you you say in the book though that you began to wonder that you know maybe maybe uh, the reason you were hired wasn't because uh, had nothing to do with how inexperienced you were. That was the first time you began to wonder how much your ethnicity was playing a role in putting you in a writer's room. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, back then this was like the late nineties people weren't really talking about diversity at that time. It wasn't it wasn't something that um, the studios and the networks really cared much about. But here was a show that had a couple of Asian leads, you know, Sammo Hung, Kelly Hu, and the show was about martial arts. And I think that there must have been some sort of like feeling of we need to have at least one Asian writer on the staff just for the optics, <laughs> even though I honestly that we didn't I, I was I didn't contribute any sort of cultural elements to the show because really it was just about Samo kicking ass. You know, I right. mean, it, <laughs> there wasn't a lot of depth or uh, character development. You know, you didn't see a whole lot of stories about Samo's, uh, you know, family life or anything like that. So I can't say that I was the Asian voice of the show, uh, but um, (laughs) but maybe it made them feel better that they had one Asian person on the staff. Well, I mean, I love how that leads to freaks and geeks. And I was curious, was there a time that you became aware that freaks and geeks was going to be a a very special, if not necessarily long lived, but a very special show? Did you know it from the pilot or was it in the production Mm -hmm. figured out you were part of something really neat? Oh, it was absolutely from the pilot. I mean, the 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 first time I saw the pilot, uh, it wasn't even fully completed. It was just a sort of a rough cut, but it had enough of the elements that I, I just I was just amazed by how good the show was. The acting was fantastic. The casting was really interesting. You know, I mean, it was very rare to see actors uh, who were actually the like teenage shows where the actors were actually the age that they were playing, because so often it's, you know, 25 year old, 30 year olds playing, you know, 15 year olds. So these these kids were really kids. Uh, so that was exciting. Um, you know, they they weren't attractive in sort of the conventional TV way of being attractive. They were, some of them were kind of funny looking and I loved that. You know, I loved the realness of that. And the music was fantastic. The directing was was fantastic. Everything about the show, the production design, the costumes was, was so exciting to me that after I watched that uncut, the, or the uh, unfinished pilot, this was like when I was interviewing uh, to to get the job. I call I immediately called my agent afterwards and I said, you got to get me on this show, please, because I've I had never wanted to be a part of something so much. And he knew that that I was serious because I, I never begged him. Usually it was like, oh, really, you mean you, you want me to work on this thing? <laughs> You 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 recount some uh, kind of harrowing experiences with some directors and some clashes and and, and fights. And uh, I'm curious, what was it that Freaks and Geeks did for you creatively that early in your career? What was what what did it do for you as an artist? 
Well, it showed me the magic of collaboration, you know, when it's when it's done right. Um, Judd Apatow and Paul Feig were uh, incredible showrunners. You know, they knew um, that if they created an atmosphere in the writer's room where everybody's ideas were welcomed and everyone felt like they were um, equals, you know, that we were that we were all invited to contribute. They knew that they were going to get a great product. And that's totally what happened, because having that freedom to just, you know, pitch ideas and not feel like you were going to get get shot down. Um, exactly. You know, it it just created this atmosphere where everybody was super open and really creative. And and we just had so much fun in the writer's room. So I think that's, you know, that was like a shining example of what can happen in a, in a writer's room when you when you have that collaborative spirit. Um, and they also, you know, put a lot of trust in us. Like I, 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 I gained a lot of confidence from that job Absolutely. Um, because, you know. I was like, like very inexperienced, and yet they, they allowed me to produce essentially produce my own episodes. And so I would go to the set, and I would, you know, uh, talk to the director about what I wanted, and then I would go to the editing room, and I would sit in on that. And and that's not um, that doesn't happen at every show, you know. Oh. A lot of times the writers are just kept very separate from all of those processes, and then you're just you're kind of just in this. Uh, the writer's room just becomes this cave where you <laughs> where you exist for hours on end and you never you never see any of the other branches of the show. But that that show was just an education all around. Yeah, I wanted to believe that that it was so positive for you because it was a show run by comedians. But, but after reading the book, I'm like, no, I think it's positive because it was those two particular comedians, yes, Paul and Judd. Absolutely. They were they were so special and I, 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 yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't uh, say that about all comedians for sure, but like they were, you know, they were just fantastic people and, and pros. Well, I mean, by the time you made it to Desperate Housewives, you were certainly a pro. You'd worked on Friends by that point. Mm. And there's been mm -hmm. a lot of headlines and a lot of excerpts from your book about your experience on Desperate Housewives and working with Mark Cherry. And, uh, you know, I was just curious. It was the pilot, I know, once again, that made you want to work there. Was there a, a moment or a time when you began to realize that the experience at Desperate Housewives was not going to be what you'd hoped for it to be? Well, very quickly that show just kind of devolved into chaos. <laughs> yeah. um, and, you know, that that was an example of a show where pretty much nobody got to write their own scripts, you know, because just from the very beginning, there was this panic, you know, the, the, to, to, to get these scripts out quickly. And so everything was written by committee. And, you know, and it, it's... I don't know if you've heard that. I'm sure you've heard this before. Uh, the the term for that is called a gangbang. Yeah. Uh, which, yeah, <laughs> it's it's disgusting. Um, but yeah, so every every script was was gangbanged, and and you know you would have separate writer, you know, different writers going off writing disembodied scenes of the script. Then you'd put it all together. You know, you just kind of try to make it into something coherent. And that was that was how these scripts were written. It never felt satisfying to write that way. I mean, I think that uh, 
I certainly didn't go into the business expecting that that's how scripts were going to be written. And I don't think anybody was doing their best work that way. You don't you don't have any feeling of a you don't have any sense of ownership over the the script. You don't have no one's no one really cares about the script when it's written that way. So, yeah. That that was that started happening very early on that show, like almost from the very beginning. Um, So that was a big red flag. You would have the experience of having your name on in the credits as the writer of an episode. And it's full of dialogue and entire scenes that you didn't have a hand in. Oh, yeah. I don't even remember what my Desperate Housewives scripts were about. (laughs) That's how little connection I have to them. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back after this. This episode is brought to you by Philo. Do you love TV? Do you love saving money? Then Philo is your solution. Philo has shows, movies, and live TV for just $25 a month. You can even try it for free with their seven-day free trial. No contracts, no commitments, no hassles, just a better way to watch TV. Never miss a minute of shows like the hit docuseries Where is Wendy Williams or classics such as Friends. If you can't get enough TV, then there's no better way to watch. Philo has more than 70 channels like BET, MTV, and AMC. And the best part? You can try it yourself with their seven-day free trial. Sign up today at philo.tv slash poppods. That's P-H-I-L-O dot TV slash P-O-P-P-O-D-S to get 50% off your first month. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back. You know, it's interesting. You you write in the book with this wildly inefficient system. It's a miracle that any episodes of Desperate Housewives ever got made. The quality that had attracted me to the pilot, the dark humor, was lost in the slapdash assembly line approach to what was supposed to be a creative process. We were putting out schlock. It's very easy for a show with a clever pilot to fall into that trap. And the general impression I got from your work is that uh, Cherry had a tight pilot and then didn't have a overarching arc for where the story Mm -hmm. would take him and so we just got lots of plot and not a lot of story is that fair i think that's fair i mean i you know writing a great pilot is a hard thing to do i think you know i give i give credit to anybody who can write a great pilot but there is a difference between writing one great episode of something and having a complete vision or at least a, a you know relatively uh, complete vision for what that series is going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of showrunners don't have that going into it. You know, um, they are kind of figuring it out along the way. And it can be done that way. I, You know, I don't think every single showrunner needs to have the whole series or the whole season mapped out. But I just worked on so many shows where it just, there seemed to be this kind of sense of, panic of oh my god we've got to put all these episodes we got to make you know write all these scripts and put and get all these episodes made and we just don't have any idea where we're going 
Yeah. Um, so that 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 happens probably more often than you would think. What 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 struck me was in the midst of all this chaos and, you know, in, in many cases, fears that you show would get canceled. That was certainly the case with freaks and geeks, but that you you had these nagging fears and anxieties that I think are really at the heart of the book where you talked about was I hired because of my race uh, or was I hired mm-hmm. because of my writing? And it really uh, I, I wish every white man in the industry could read this book because it shows how consistently being one of the only people of color in a writer's room really feeds what we call imposter syndrome. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I you know, I didn't think about it a whole lot when I was going through it because I was just so busy trying to survive and trying to do a good job. But after I left the business and I had time to reflect on it and I started reading other accounts of Asian American people who worked in fields where they weren't well represented, that's when I realized that I wasn't the only one, that it that it was actually very common for people to, to feel that kind of imposter syndrome um, where you are where you feel like you have to work extra hard to prove that you belong there, that you deserve a seat at the table. So it's just kind of this undercurrent that I think was running, you know, the whole time that I was working in the business, even when I wasn't necessarily conscious of it. Can I ask about Breaking Bad? Sure. Because that was your final staff job. You were supervising producer and senior writer on on Breaking Bad, a a great show. Everyone can agree. You were one of, uh, I think, the only woman uh, on the writing staff and Mm -hmm. one of only two non-white people on the staff. Mm-hmm. And I got to say, you you really, really, um, I've never believed the auteur theory, per se. I, I, I get that artists can have visions, but they have to have other people to make them realize those visions. Orson Welles didn't do everything on the set of Citizen Kane. It took a whole team. And there's been a lot in the press about your take on the auteur theory as relates to your experience working with, with Vince Gilligan. And I'm curious, what was the evolution like on the show when you began to realize that it really was going to be one guy doing all the writing and the writers were there to maybe help him if he asked for it. It it seems just so heartbreaking. Yeah, nobody, no writer wants to be sidelined in that way. You know, I mean, we all understand that there is a showrunner or creator who has a vision and it's and it's and it's their vision. Right. But when you hire a staff, the expectation is that you are going to work with that staff to essentially train them to write the show that you want. Um, That's why they're there. Right. You know, because one person can't do it all. And um, and I think a lot of showrunners, I'm, I'm not singling out Vince, but a lot of showrunners have trouble delegating these responsibilities and you know it takes time it takes effort to train a staff of writers to write the show the way that you want them to write the show exactly it's an investment it's an investment but that investment if you do put that investment in it pays off you know i mean i saw that on freaks and geeks where they really invested in the writers and gave all the writers a chance to, you know, learn from their mistakes and rewrite their own material. And everybody felt like they were able to write the show. I mean, Paul and, and Judd, they, they would always do a pass, you know, they would uh, they would always take it and sort of like, you know, um, polish things up because 
that it was Paul's, you know, Paul's baby, right? That was that was his uh, that was his vision, and that and you know that is completely valid. But it's um, I've just saw so many times in my career a showrunner that would get completely frazzled because they didn't delegate. You know, yes. where they yeah. were just taking on every single responsibility, whether that's the writing, whether that's the directing, you know, what it, there are so many there are so many different elements to a, a, a TV production that takes many, many, many people. And if you don't trust those people to do their jobs that you're going to end up killing yourself. Yeah. Uh, you know, because you just can't do it all. It, it's it's just beyond a human's capacity to do everything. Well, so that's I, how that's yeah. why, I, you know, I think that the auteur theory, it sounds good from the outside. You know, it makes a really fun story. And God knows Hollywood loves to tell stories about itself. Uh, <laughs> but it just it's just on a technical level. It's it just doesn't it doesn't work. It's not healthy for the show. And, and I, I got to say, the most striking part of the book really is about the toll all of this took on your physical health and your whole emotional well-being and, and your whole ability to, to separate perception from reality. I mean, you it seems that there was so much stress and the expectation is that you have to have that much stress because that's the only way you succeed. What was the process that led you to say you were done with this, that you had given your soul and the job was not meeting the needs that you had. Well, that was a that was a very long road because I, um, you know, once you kind of get your foot in the door and you start to, to you know, succeed, uh, it's very hard to walk away from it because you've invested so much time and energy into it. Uh, but I just from the very start, I, I, I was overworked. And and I knew it, you know, I mean, I when I first moved to Hollywood and I was working as an assistant and I was pounding the pavement trying to get a writing job, I was so stressed out that I I passed out in my kitchen and, and broke my my front teeth and had to go to the emergency room. I mean, it was like that it, that it was that level of stress. And all through my writing career, I had health issues. I had T I had TMJ that was so bad that I felt like uh, when I would wake up in the morning, I felt like somebody had punched me in the jaw. I had I'll, I'll be completely honest here because this is in my book. I had hemorrhoids for years. <laughs> yeah, it's an occupational hazard for writers. Yeah. You're on your yeah. butt all day. <laughs> um I would it just I knew that my life was totally out, out of balance, you know, and that's not that I'm just talking about the physical stuff. Like there's the oh, yeah. emotional health as well. My relationship suffered, you know, I never had any time to to hang out with my boyfriend. You know, our, our relationship was was in the shitter for a long time and we never had time to deal with it because we were so busy working because he was also a writer. Mm. So um, it was just relentless and then finally you know after several years of going full steam like this my agent my tv agent he could see that i was headed for a nervous breakdown and so he suggested that i go on a sabbatical he was like just take a year off you know rest and we'll regroup after that and it was the best thing i ever did because it was like i actually got to uh, you know, experience what life was like outside of the rat race and outside right. of this Hollywood treadmill that I was on. And I got to just 
spend time doing things that I enjoyed and I got to do writing for the fun of it. Uh, you know, I mean, it was it was just like the greatest year of my life. <laughs> uh, and and it was hard because I was I grew up, you know, in a very practical family that was very hardworking. And so, you know, I, I was plagued by these um, voices in my head that would say, like, what, you're so lazy. What are you what are you <laughs> yep. doing? You're going to take yep. time off. Nobody yep. does that. <laughs> um but that was kind of the first taste that I had of life after Hollywood. And I and I never forgot it. Like even when I went back to work after that and got back into the grind, I always remembered what it was like to live a normal life, you know, like a yeah. like a live like a human being. And I I couldn't I couldn't forget that. And so, you know, eventually I I worked up the nerve to walk away and um and it took years and years, but it was just I, I think at some point I just su had suffered long enough. And yeah. I was like, I need to uh, if I don't get out of this, I'm I'm not going to I'm I'm just not going to survive. You know, that's that's yeah. how it felt. It seems like it was very healing to write this book. And I, I have to praise you because the book has no right to be as entertaining as it is. There's so much horror and heartbreak. <laughs> and it's such a, a fun read. Um, and I know you didn't realize there was going to be a strike <laughs> while the book was yeah. published. But I think you've done a great service because anybody who, who doesn't really understand the Writers Guild strike, you will learn so much about why being a writer is great. But working as a writer is extremely hard. Patty Lynn, I loved your book. I love your story. Please Thank come you. back anytime. The book is End Credits, How I Broke Up with Hollywood. What is the best way for our audience of Riff Raff to follow you and keep up with all your doings? Uh, well, you can check out my website, pattylynn.com. That's P-A-T-T-Y-L-I-N. Or uh, you can follow me on Instagram at virtualpattylynn. Thank you again so much. I loved your book, and I can't wait to see what you do next. Thank you. Thank you so much, John. Thank you.